everybody, welcome to This Good Word, episode 149, and I'm with Karen Gonzalez today, and she is fantastic. She is, she works for World Relief. She's writing a book about immigration called The God Who Sees. She and her family immigrated from Guatemala uh, in the 80s, and oh my goodness, I, I just thought this, this conversation was so helpful for me to understand both what's happening right now in terms of immigration law and how long it's been happening for in the United States and also what we can do about it. So, uh, man, this was, I, I can't wait for you to listen to our conversation. I think it's really going to be helpful. And uh, I want to say I'm so excited about some of the guests that are upcoming. We have Austin Shannon, Shannon Brown coming up. We have Daniel Hill coming up uh, and many, many others that I just I can't wait for you all to uh, to listen to. And um, so I feel like we're going to have a very good summer here at This Good Word. And so thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for uh, indulging me last week as I took a week off. There was just no possible way that the podcast was going to happen. Life has been on the crazy side lately. And so thanks for the grace. Thanks for the encouragement. I hope you found some other podcasts to listen to. Uh, But for now, uh, enjoy Karen Gonzalez. Well, hey, friends, welcome to This Good Word. I am here with Karen Gonzalez. And uh, so, Karen, welcome to This Good Word. I'm so glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, ever since we met at the festival, which I felt like was just a goldmine of meeting so so many interesting people, uh, I knew I wanted to have you on. So we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk immigration. We're going to talk... Uh, the book that you're writing. We're going to talk about um, lots and lots of things, but start off by telling us a little bit about your growing up experience, sort of where did you grow up and how did that form you? Sure. So I grew up kind of all over. Um, So I was born in Guatemala and I lived there with my parents uh, right up until the civil war really started to heat up in Latin America after Reagan was elected and i I know reagan's a conservative darling but really he really had a foreign policy that was really harmful in central america and 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 south america as well and so the war really not only did it create all these disappearances and you know all this mass murder by the government but also it destabilized the entire economy um it was a really difficult time for people living in guatemala and so m- many of my relatives were already living in the U.S. Um, they had come at different times. And so my, uh, we, w- we decided to come to the U.S. at that time. And we left, I believe, like 1981. It was Thanksgiving Day. Okay. I remember that. <laughs> wow. And we, and we arrived in the U.S. And, and we lived in Los Angeles for a few years. And then we moved to Florida. So from the time... I was about um, 13. We lived in Florida, and that's where I spent the most time, I guess. You know, and my dad still lives there. Got it. And Karen, what were the immigration laws back then, back in 81, 82? Well, at the time that we immigrated, um, the laws were a lot friendlier. And really, the, the law that we immigrated under is called the Immigration and Naturalization Act. 
And it was instituted around 1965, around the same time of the civil rights movement, which really benefited many, many immigrants. And so um, it was only about 15 years old at that time. And so my uncle sponsored us. Now, we were still undocumented for a couple of years, but the line was so much shorter. So we only waited about two years and a few months for our immigrant visa to become available. And then we flew to Guatemala for our interview uh, at the U.S. Embassy. And then we came back with our green cards. Now, if we were doing that today, just to draw the difference between how the system is just taxed and outdated, the line would be about 13 years to wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, and for some people, like people from the Philippines or China or India, the wait is as long as 23 years. So... That's that's really how much things have changed, you know, in in these 20, 30 years. Um, so, yeah, our system has really, really needs updating. Not a total revamp because a lot of it is still good. The, the immigration based on family ties. But <clears throat> there's definite, you know, it's just gotten so overwhelmingly crowded and it doesn't really keep up with the labor needs in our country, especially at the very high end or very low end of the spectrum. And so now um, the waits are so long that people just choose to come undocumented because, you know, if your life is being threatened, if you can't feed your children, you can't wait 12 to 13 years for that visa to be available. Yeah. And you, so you've chosen to work with World Relief, uh, which I know works with refugees primarily. Uh, When did you get into World Relief and why did you choose uh, that way to, um, why did you choose that profession? Sure. So I had worked, I moved to the East Coast um, a few years ago because all my family. The beautiful city of Baltimore. The beautiful city of Baltimore. (laughs) And, um, you know, my family lives on the eastern seaboard, and it was just a lot easier as my, especially as my dad is getting older. Yeah. Um, and I began, when I initially moved, I started teaching as an adjunct professor uh, with the Refugee Assistance Program at Baltimore City Community College. So I was an English teacher by profession in my first life. Yes. And so I <laughs> I knew how to do that well, um, and I had taught English overseas, and so... So I, I got into working with refugees that way, and I started learning so much about their situation and about the refugee resettlement process. It's something that I, I didn't know anything about. Um, you know, even my own immigration story, to be honest, I really wasn't familiar with what had happened because I was a, a kid. I didn't know my parents lived in fear of being deported. I didn't know everything they had to do to work uh, as undocumented immigrants. I had no clue because I had been such a small child when I came. So I began to um, learn more about this as I started working with them. And I asked my dad, you know, the story. And then I had a good friend from seminary who actually worked at um, World Relief. And when a position became available, so World Relief's work is primarily in refugee resettlement, but they also do immigrant legal services. And nearly every office has immigrant legal services, and that's for any immigrant, not just for 
uh, refugees. Certainly refugees need those services too, but it's for anyone. And the office that I began working in was actually just immigrant legal services. So it was mostly um, not refugees. It was just any immigrant that lived in Baltimore, Baltimore County. And some would come as far away as from the, the Eastern shore, which there's no legal services out there. Yeah. So that's how I got into that work. And my work was in church engagement. So basically working with churches to help them understand that the Bible commands us to love the stranger. Yeah. So I did have to take a, a, a legal class to learn about immigration law. And I had to pass an exam and all that. And then I also learned, you know, I read Matt Sorens and Jenny Yang's book, Welcoming the Stranger. And I, I developed sort of my own materials. So I would preach at churches in the, in the area about what the Bible says um, about this. And I mostly did it through the book of Ruth, through that narrative of yeah. Ruth being an immigrant and being welcomed into the community of Israel. So um, that's how my work started with World Relief. And it's been a really great experience that all of their work in the U.S. is with foreign-born people. Yeah. They also do anti-trafficking work. And so um, it was really, I learned firsthand just how, how our immigration legal system works. And I can't imagine immigrants navigating that on their own. And yeah. so it was, it was really eye-opening to me to see the weights that people have, the processes they have to go through, the incredible expense, because it's so expensive. Anything you do, you know, you become a citizen, it's over $1,000 for the application. So it's, it's a very, very um, lengthy and costly and complex process. And people definitely need someone who speaks English well, helping to walk them. Yeah. Um, Karen, can you can you share a story or two uh, of I mean anything that would that you f would feel comfortable sharing about uh, someone that you have met that you have helped walk through the process and just exactly what what an immigrant or a refugee needs to walk through and and before you do that I think it's like I think most people would not be able to say concretely here's the difference between an immigrant and a refugee. So can you clarify that first? And then would you mind telling a story of someone that you've just sort of helped walk through and what they have had to go through? Sure. So uh, a really a refugee is a type of immigrant. An immigrant is anybody who's foreign born and moves to another country to live. Um, what makes refugees different is that they typically have had to flee from their country to another country and at that second country where they fled, they apply with the refugee agency through the UN to become refugees and then be resettled. So before refugees arrive, they already have a residency permit, an immigrant visa to be able to stay. Whereas people, for example, that are seeking asylum, they arrive at the US first and then they apply for asylum. So that's sort of a, a difference. Um, and so an immigrant is anyone else who's not in that category of being classified as a refugee, someone who fled because of persecution. Right. And then arriving in the country with their documentation already. Okay. So 
Yeah, so I can I can tell you what I can tell you is a little bit of a composite okay. story because they're legal cases, so I can't give right. you know names and details. Um, but I can tell you um, one of the situations that um, we looked at um, was a man who was undocumented, and he was married to a woman who was a U.S. citizen. She was also Latina, but she was born here, so she was a U.S. citizen, and they had several children, one of them um, a special needs child. So she stayed home and took care of the kids and he he worked. And so he was trying to get his documentation. But so one of the laws that came into being under Bill Clinton was that if you are in the United States for six months, at least six months or a year, you have a bar from the country for you know, it could be three years, it could be 10 year bar before you can. So basically what it would mean is his wife could sponsor him, but because he'd had unlawful presence in the US for more than one year, he'd had to go back to his country for 10 years wow. before he could get his immigrant visa. So this has kept a lot of people who were married to US citizens from being able um, to get their documentation because they don't want to be separated from their family for 10 years. Right, right. Now, can, can, like, why would that law be put in place? They hoped that the law would discourage people right. for come from coming in unlawfully. Right. But the thing is, it's like the death penalty. You know, people think it's a deterrent to crime. But the way that people flee because they're in danger, because they can't feed their families because they don't have any opportunities and these things don't come into their mind they don't even know about them right until you know much later as in the case of this gentleman he didn't even know this bar existed until he went through the process and then the attorney in our um, clinic explained to him he'd have to go back for 10 years and then come back with an immigrant visa and so he wasn't willing to do that so he continued to work undocumented and what our attorney told him is like, you know, come back every year or so. We can see if there are any changes in the law and see what we can do for you. But at this point, this is your only option. So he would do that and he um, continued to live and work. And so one day he was down near DC and he had been to a party and he had drunk too much as people do at parties. So he decided not to drive home because of the drinking. So what he did is he got into his car into the you know driver's seat and he reclined the seat and just decided to sleep there until morning when he was sober and then drive home back to Baltimore. Hmm. Well while he was sleeping one of the neighbors called the police because they saw this man you know sleeping in his car. And the police came and questioned him. And he said, you know, I'm sleeping because I drank too much. And they're like, well, you are in the front seat of the car. And he's like, yeah, but the keys are in my pocket. I'm not driving, the car is not on. And they said, that really doesn't matter. <clears throat> as long as you are in the front seat, in the driver's seat, we can charge you with a DUI. Mm. And they did, they charged him with a DUI and now he was an immigrant who was a criminal. No criminal record prior to this, mm. but he had this. And so what happened was, and this was, you know, 
prior to, this was maybe 2014, so prior to Donald Trump and any of that even being in view, he was put in detention, and then he was um, told he would go through deportation proceedings because he was a criminal immigrant. And the attorney in her office went to defend him, and she pleaded before the judge, and she said, you know, he's a hardworking man, he supports his family, he was not driving the car, these were the circumstances of this DUI. He was actually trying to be a good neighbor by not driving drunk, you know? Right. And, um, and the judge ruled against him, and so he was deported. Mm. And subsequently. His family had to go on public assistance. People who had been supported by the breadwinner of their family now become public charges because of the system that we right. we have. And you know that's the last we had of this whole situation. And what people don't know about immigration is that unlike the criminal justice system where there is all this due process, a lot of it is just at the discretion of the judge. So if the judge decides to, you know, deport the person, he or she can. If they start decide not to, he or she can. You know, we say we live in a country of laws. I have a good friend, Dan, who says when it comes to immigration, we're really a country of whims. Mm. Wow. As any, you know, so a, a judge or an, or an official with USCIS can make a decision. Yes, I believe you. No, I don't believe you. Or I'm in a bad mood. I want to have lunch. Yeah. you know, and yeah. can just make a discretionary judgment. And so that to me was one of the saddest stories, just because how is it American to separate families, to create a situation where a family now becomes a public charge because they lost their father and their breadwinner, all because this man was trying to be a good neighbor and not drive drunk, right. you know? Oh. And, and this, this brings up something, Karen, you and I were talking about a little bit before we pressed record, but I think <clears throat> uh, a lot of people are sort of, their eyes are opening right now to, uh, to some of these problems with the laws of immigration, and they are sort of making the mistaken uh, decision that this is, this is all new, this is all about Trump, this is all about, this, this is all, these are all new policies, but Really, that's not the case. Can you sort of talk about how this has been an issue for quite some time? Yes. Um, believe it or not, one of the friendliest presidents in terms of immigration was George W. Bush. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we don't associate Republicans with having, you know, great um, immigration policy. But I think because George W. Bush comes from a border state, from Texas, you know, um, and actually, Obama, you know, they call Obama the deporter in chief. Hmm. Um, and it's pretty unpopular, you know. Sometimes I'll tweet out on, on um, you know, on, on Twitter, I'll say something like, hey, these problems didn't start with Trump. Our whole system is outdated and needs to be changed because this was happening all prior to Trump. What is new with Trump is the really ugly rhetoric, yeah. the dehumanizing language. That is all very new. It's also very new that all these policies are getting all this media attention. Prior to this, when Obama, who, you know, I liked Obama, I voted for him, but he was a media darling for a lot of his uh, tenure as president. 
And all these deportations really weren't highlighted. So he deported more people than any president prior to him, sort of in this modern era. And he did it for, you know, for good reason. He basically was trying to push through immigration reform, and he wanted to show Republicans that he meant business, that he was serious, and that he wasn't going to let people break the law. So he had some really harsh enforcement. So all these, like, detention centers all exploded under Obama. Um, So people think these things are new. You know, there's a picture that's rolling around all over social media about these detention centers with the children. Mm-hmm. And what people don't know is that picture's from 2014. Yeah. It was before Trump was in office. And so um, Obama had good reason, but unfortunately he didn't have a plan B because mm-hmm. even though he did all this to show the Republicans, hey, you can trust me, I'm serious about this, there was no plan for if the Republicans didn't come around. And so what, what, what we were left with is all these policies, you know, the detentions. You might remember the um, unaccompanied minors who were coming from Central America because of the gang warfare down there. Well, it was really Obama who put a stop to that. And the way that he did it is that he did it on the Mexican side. He gave the Mexican government all this incentive to stop those kids from crossing into the U.S. Because when you arrive at the border, you absolutely have the legal right under U.S. law to seek asylum. So you can say to the Border Patrol agents, I am here seeking asylum. I have a credible fear of returning to my country based on, you know, whatever yeah. the, um, the fear is that you have. And then they have to let you in, what we call that you get paroled in, you know. Um, but Obama was even stopping them from getting there. They were being stopped at Mexico and sent back. So, you know, this all was going on. And people now, I think, want to credit Trump with all of these things, but they were going on way before that. Um, The separation of families is a new thing. So that is new under Trump, this like idea. And I think it, it goes to this idea of like, if I if we do this, right, just like the Clintons thought, okay, we're going to set up this bar, this 10-year bar, and it's going to keep people from coming over. It's going to deter them from coming over. And I think that's what they're doing with the separation of families. Oh, we're going to do this, and it's going to deter families from coming over because they don't want to be separated. But I think they really underestimate the desperation of these families and the very situation that they're living in in their country that they would still take the risk and come because things are so bad and because there's a chance, a small chance, you know, that maybe we'll get asylum and maybe we'll be okay when we arrive in the country. Hey friends, we'll get right back to the podcast, but I wanted to let you know if you want to know more about anything that I've done, well, not anything, but my books, my blog, the other podcast episodes, head over to steveweens.com and you can find everything you need. Also, if you want to support me on Patreon.com, just go to Patreon.com slash ThisGoodWord. And if you support me for as little as $2 a month, you'll get lots of benefits. Fun, fun stuff. Okay, now let's get back to the podcast. Wow. And so 
I, I think all this is so important, you know, and it's not to prop up Trump and it's not to, you know, absolutely rail on Obama, but it is to say that that we have significant need for immigration reform. Uh, and, and, and that need has been going on for at least 25, 30 years, Karen, more. Yeah, it's been a long time that we've needed that. Yeah. And so how do you help churches uh, start to change the landscape for immigration in America? Sure. So I think with churches, the number one place you have to start. And by the way, this is mainline churches and evangelical churches because people think, oh, the mainline, they're so progressive. They're already on board. Well, the pastors might be, and they probably are, to be honest, but not the congregations. I have not found any difference. I have found the same dehumanizing questions, the same ignorance about the entire system. That's no difference. So the place I start with people is, so I do this um, presentation, and then I, I talk about Ruth and the way that she was welcomed into this society, um, which, by the way, is also the first chapter of my book is about yes. Ruth, and and I um, and I talk about how Ruth came into this community, and she became a blessing to them. Hmm. She was welcomed exactly as the Bible says she should be welcomed. She was allowed to glean in the fields because that's what God had provided for immigrants and other vulnerable people. People treat her, they don't treat her as a threat, they don't treat her as a burden. Um, and then she becomes a blessing to them just as they're a blessing to her, someone in need. And so when I start with people, I always ask them, where did you get your information about immigration? Hmm. Just think back, where did you learn about immigration? What do your views come from? Are they primarily informed by the but there's over 80 instances in the Bible where it says that we should well, be <coughs> Excuse me. It's okay. Or did you get your views from your family? Did you get your views from the media, from our current president? Um, where did your views come from? Because they came from somewhere. And it's important to think about where that place is and whether or not it was the Bible. And for most people, it's not the Bible, because pastors simply don't preach on immigration right. as the social justice issue, which the Bible speaks to a lot. And so that's the first place I start. And then I start by asking them, do you know any immigrants? Mm. Do you know the stories of any immigrants? And I don't mean transactional relationships like my cleaning lady or does my lawn, but You know, they're all around us. Immigrants are our neighbors, right? So do you know anyone in your circle? They say that 80% of immigrants have never been inside an American home as a guest. Mm. And so I ask people, you know, have you ever hosted an immigrant in your home for dinner, for coffee, whatever? Um, Because, you know, we can't love people if we don't even know them. If they're just nameless faceless people out there um we don't have any context right it's just this threat that's out there coming to get me and my own and so i encourage them to look around them i said immigrants are all around you they're 
classmates, children. They live in your neighborhood. They work in your neighborhood. They work in your offices. Immigrants aren't just people who are recently arrived and who want to come here and don't speak English. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, like 88% of second generation immigrants speak English well. Yeah. So it's, or, or the 1.5, you know, the people who came like me as children. Yeah. So as well, like, do you have relationships? Hmm. And then the last piece is I talk about advocacy. Like, you know, you know now what the Bible says about the immigrant, you know, then you need to start speaking up and showing up for immigrants. And one of the best things that people can do is call their Congress people, call their senators. It is, I know it seems like nothing. It seems like they don't even care. Believe it or not, they do. And the people who are anti-immigrant call a lot. Yeah. So they need to hear those of us who care about immigrants, who care about change, who care about the zero tolerance policy that's separating families at the border. So, um, and that's one way, but you can also advocate, you know, I had this really great experience where I'd been at this really um, affluent church here in Baltimore. And I ran into a woman who had been, I did this six week class on welcoming the immigrant. And I ran into her and, and she came up to me and she said, I want you to know, I heard people talking about how immigrants should come here. Immigrants don't get in line. You know, how our grandparents came here the legal way. And I just let them know, did you know there was no immigration policy <laughs> until, and I let them know that our grandparents, there was no law. They came in before there were laws, you know, uh, which is true. And I let them know that, you know, it, it, which is true. 98% of the people who came through Ellis Island were allowed in. Yeah. So basically, unless you had unless you had lice yeah. or tuberculosis, you know, you were allowed in. Um, and she's like, and I just let them know, hey, maybe you received some misinformation, but these are the facts, you know. And I, I was so happy because I was like, that's right. It's exactly true. And the biggest place we can advocate is where we're at. You know, when I hear people say things that I know are wrong, I just say, I try to say in a non-condescending, non-combative way, which can be really hard for me as an Enneagram 8. Oh, <laughs> but, you're an 8. But, <laughs> but I try to engage people with the facts and, and let them know, hey, did you know there are no lines to get into for many people? And so there's, there's nothing for them to do other than whatever they can do to help their families. So... <clears throat> Anyway, yeah. I think that's so important, Karen, um, to help people start to develop a way to, um, with dignity, uh, say, no, actually, I, I, I don't agree with that statement. In fact, here, here is really what, here's, here's the truth on that one. And I think, you know, because people freeze up, maybe, maybe they've been to one of your lectures, maybe they've read something and they know, but then they get around the Thanksgiving table or they're at work around the water cooler and someone throws out a pretty uninformed statement. But then there's this moment like, right, like, am I going to press into this right now or, or am I going to let it go? Um, and I think the temptation is to let it go because you don't want to start World War III right in the middle of your office. But on the other hand, yeah. 
so here's here's my question: What happens to a person if they never step in and say, "Actually, no"? Like, what happens to a person's um, soul might be might be stretching it, but what happens to their spirit if 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 they if they just constantly allow um, bad information to keep being spread? Yeah, that's a great question, and. You know, I used to have that policy as well. I completely understand and feel for people who are like, well, I have this, you know, racist or xenophobic uncle. I don't want to engage. It's not going to do any good. And it may not do any good for him, you know, for the person making the statements. But I do think it's really important for you, for your soul to speak up. Yes. Because when people are being dehumanized in your presence, that's your duty as a Christian, as a human being, to stand up um, and say, you don't have to do it in a harsh way. You don't have to yell and scream, but to say, you know, I think you you have some information. Or, you know, one of the ways that I tell people to engage is to say something like, innocuous like you know that's really interesting because my experience has been different Mm -hmm. and then share or ask them more questions i I have this friend who's excellent at that who just asks people more questions about their views and then gradually unpacks where they've gotten this and then engages them with this is what i have learned is true about this you know and and does it in a very sort of gentle way in a very kind way because we want to love people into transformation. No one's ever right. been berated, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. But, and, you know, when I go to um, churches, you know, there's this very sort of convenient amnesia that people have. And I remember one time this man raising his hand and saying, oh, you know, my family came from Hungary and, you know, they learned English and they integrated so well into society. And I'm just really worried about these you know, Central Americans in Baltimore who just seem to keep to themselves and not learn English and blah, 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 you know, he's going on with this. So before I had a chance to say anything, his wife raises her hand and she's like, Tom, grandma did not speak English. We couldn't even communicate with her. (laughs) He's like, yes, she did. She's like, no, she didn't. She did not speak English. And you know, I know that's a big frustration for people is like they're afraid that people won't integrate. But the reality is <clears throat> that most people will integrate fully. 99.9% will integrate fully. It will just happen in two or three generations. So, yes, if you're seeing immigrants that don't know English, they're probably first generation. Only 24% of first generation immigrants speak English well. But it jumps to 88%. By second generation, mm-hmm. 94% by third generation. Really, the biggest concern should be how do these people keep their first language and culture? Right. Because it'll be it'll be gone within a generation. I want to ask you this question, Karen. Like, I think it's fair um, for people to have to confront their fears. How do you help people who maybe you can tell like there's 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 a crack in the armor? And they want to move from where they're from, which, you know, might be a pretty combative stance, but they have fears. Like, how do you help people address those fears? You know, I think with fear, one of the things that 
because <clears throat> this comes up not in an honest hi i'm fearful kind of way but just people will ask questions that you know there's fear or anxiety behind it um and so you know i have a, a good friend sarah casada who wrote a book called love undocumented mm -hmm. and it's about her marriage to an undocumented immigrant and you know the subtitle of her book is risking trust in a fearful world and I think that is a perfect sort of subtitle when it comes to immigration, because I think so many people are coming at it from this point of fear and anxiety about what's happening to our country, what's going to happen in our schools, and you know, how is this affecting our our society? You know, yeah, yeah. And so, so one of the things I try to talk about people with is like, you know, ultimately, we can't find security in our government. Mm -hmm. We can't find security in our laws. We know historically there have been laws that were unjust and that have now changed. You know, it used to be that black people could be owned and were considered three-fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. And we know those laws have changed. So finding our security in our immigration policy, in our government, in our country's laws, really is misplaced trust because they will never be able to do enough to alleviate all our fears. They're broken and corrupt in so many ways. And so I like to point people to Jesus. This is where our trust needs to be. And what, what has Jesus said? What has Jesus done? Did Jesus model a life of fear and defensiveness and, and you know, excluding the other? Did he model a life of self-protection uh, for us, or did he mo model a life of like radical love, radical inclusion, and putting our faith in God and in Jesus rather than um, in all of these sort of man-made um, structures, you know, yeah. that are out there. And so, I mean, there's no way to alleviate people of fear altogether, you know. And, you know, fear is an emotion and you can feel it. It doesn't mean you have to act on it. Right. And you have to vote out of that, you know. Right. You can sit and be present to it. You can even welcome it as a way to um, disarm it, you know, as a way of robbing it of its power. But you can't vote based on that. Mm. You can't treat your fellow human beings out of that. Uh, you ultimately have to trust God and what God has said about people. Um, and we're in a, in a very fearful time right now, you know, Donald Trump and his presidency, they really stoked a lot of fear against the other, mm -hmm. you know, immigrants, um, Muslims, you know, um, and it's easy to give into that, to give into that and to blaming other people. So I know, you know, when that's being modeled from the top, you know, Obama didn't do that. Right. When it came to Muslims, when it came to immigrants, he didn't do that. He had these policies sort of on the side, but he wasn't speaking this rhetoric that made people feel fearful, that made people feel like, yeah, these people are to blame. And and that was a good thing that he did. It's to his credit that he didn't dehumanize everyone while trying to deal with the country's problems. Ultimately, what people are fearful of with immigration they're not really fearful of immigrants. They're fearful of globalization. Mm. That's really what's what's taken away jobs, technology. You know, mm -hmm. that's away with jobs. Um, that's really what's at work. You know, I was recently in Rhode Island, where 
a lot of my family lives. And when a lot of my relatives immigrated to Rhode Island, they worked in uh, costume jewelry factories. That used to be the biggest industry hmm. in Rhode Island. Hmm. All these factories everywhere where people worked and, uh, and did costume jewelry. Uh, and they put things together, put earrings in the little packages, you know, and, yeah. and all of that and made them. Well, you know, now I was talking to my aunt who worked and retired in that, you know. I said, what's happened to all those factories, you know? And she's like, oh, they're all in China now. There's no, there's no more costume jewelry in Rhode Island. And it'd be easy to blame immigrants, you know, but really that's just the, the global world that we live in. And now most immigrants who live in Rhode Island worked in the service industry. They work in uh, custodial services. It's a whole different economy that's taken over yeah. in terms of the jobs that people do. And and that's a reality that needs to be addressed with people, too, you know, that we can't blame immigrants for the way that the world has changed. Right. That's just misplaced, you know, right. anger. So good. Um, okay, Karen, last question is you are writing a book and it's about immigration. You talked a little bit, a little bit about it with that delicious uh, comparison to how we can look to the book of Ruth to see how to welcome the stranger and be blessed by them. Uh, what else can you tell us about this book and when is it coming out and when, when can I buy it? Sure. So the book is called the God who sees hmm. and, um, it's coming out in April of next year. Okay. And really the book is two things. It is a memoir. It's a story of my family's immigration where I tell the story from us living in Guatemala to us immigrating and finding a life here. And how really I came to faith, you know, through that process, you know, yeah. I think one of the things that people miss with immigration, especially Christians who should care about this is that it's a, a wonderful missional opportunity. Now, I don't believe in becoming friends with people as missionary projects, right. but there is a way in which relationship allows us to very naturally talk about our hope in Christ, mm -hmm. you know. So I became a Christian through my immigration story. So I share the story of immigrating. And then every other chapter, I also tell the story of a biblical immigrant. So I start with Ruth, um, you know, who was an immigrant. But I also talk about people like Abraham that mm -hmm. people aren't used to thinking about. Abraham, who, by the way, was a criminal immigrant yeah, who, you yeah. know, trapped his wife and lied. And, but also people like Joseph, Joseph in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. um, Jesus himself, who was a refugee. Um, there's a, a lot of people in the Bible. There's a, a sort of meta narrative in the Bible of people who begin as strangers and then are grafted into the family of God. Yeah. So that's what I'm following in. It's really already in the Bible. What I'm doing is helping people to see that because yeah. it's not something that's taught, you know, for many people. So, yeah, so that's the book. Um, oh, it's called beautiful. God Who Sees and is uh, being put out by Herald Press. Okay. Oh, I love that. Um, I cannot wait to read it. And, um, you know, even even the people of God, I mean, essentially, you know, a lot of a lot of commentators think that really Genesis is the prequel to the story that really starts the story of God's people start in Exodus. And so even God's people themselves start as strangers in a strange land. And that is mm -hmm. part of our deep, deep identity. And part of the story of the scriptures, I think, too, is the tendency 
when we are delivered from whatever bondage we are delivered from to forget that we were once the other. And when we forget, we, um, we begin to oppress others. Right. So, um, man, I can't wait to read. I can't wait to read your book, Karen. Um, okay. Let's say someone wants to get in touch with you to bring you out to do an Enneagram workshop. I know you're an Enneagram, uh, trained Enneagram coach, uh, or to do a talk at their church, uh, a sermon at their church on immigration. Uh, how would they get in touch with you? Sure. So I have a website. Um, it is karen-gonzalez.com. And I'm also on like Twitter and Instagram at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. So they can find me there as well. Um, and I just want to say to people, a lot of people have been asking me too, what can they do now? I think people feel a real, a real sort of heart tugging at seeing families torn apart at the border. Yeah. Um, is there any way that we have time for me to speak to Absolutely. that too quickly? Yes, of course. So I think one of the first things that you can do is really be informed about recent policy changes and the way that they're affecting people. Um, so, you know, there are uh, fact sheets out there that are put out by people like World Relief, by the Justice Conference. There are also great books that you can read on this subject. Um, so Love Undocumented is one of them. Matt Sorens and Jenny Yang wrote a really great book called Welcoming the Stranger. It's a really great way for you to learn what is happening. But certainly looking at fact sheets is the fastest way to do that. Um, and like I said, you want to definitely advocate. Call your representatives. Call your senators. It is really easy. And all you have to do is say, look, I've heard about this. I'm deeply concerned what is the senator or the representative's policy on this? Because I want him or her to know that I support keeping families together, that I support a welcoming America. Yeah. And also yeah. really praying, praying for God to protect children, to keep families together, to reunite those who have been separated and, and to restore peace in this world. You know, people are leaving because of violence, because of conflict in their countries and some of it we have caused with our foreign policy we've destabilized countries and economies you know people are upset by the russian meddling in our election but we've toppled entire governments um you know with our foreign policy and so we have to take responsibility for that and really pray for our government as well and then lastly there are some great organizations working with families these are people who i mean I think some people would really like to go to the border and see what they can do. The best thing that you can do is there are people who are already trained on the ground and who are um, at the border. So there's a great organization called Kids in Need of Defense, KIND is what they call it. And they actually provide legal representation to children who arrive as unaccompanied minors at the border. Um, there's organizations like World Relief as well that do advocacy and serve immigrants. And then there's organizations that are addressing the root causes of violence in Central America. So one of them is called Inlace. It's in El Salvador and Guatemala. And there's one also in Honduras called um, the Association for a More Just Society, and they're working in Honduras. These are great organizations that really need funding to do the work that they do. They're already professionals. They know what to do. And it's one of the best ways that you can serve. Um, these communities in need. 
Oh man, that's so good. So uh, listen, people, I'm I am going to include all all of those. I think there were seven steps right there, seven things that you can do um, about the current issue right now with families that are being separated uh, from the fact sheets to the books that you can read to calling your advocates. Uh, I mean, to calling your senators and representatives, to praying, to um, uh, connecting with organizations that are already doing. Uh, really, really good work for representing people. All that stuff will be on the show notes. So check that out and click on the links. I'll put links to the books, links to the organizations that Karen just represented so you can get involved. I'll also include links to Karen's website and to her Twitter and Instagram feeds so you can get in touch with her there. Um, so Karen, oh my goodness, thank you so much. Um, I would love to have you back on after the book is out. We, we, can, we can talk about uh, we can talk about that and um, and how that journey is for you. It is a it is a wonderful and treacherous journey <laughs> of putting a book out there. But I can't wait to read yours. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. It's great. I'm very passionate about um, these issues, and it's great to be able to talk about them and help people understand a little bit more about how they can get involved. So thank you so much, Steve.